0: We weekly pray as our Lord taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? Jesus teaches us to pray then for God's kingdom to come. John the Baptist and Jesus, when they began preaching, preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So that means the gospel that Jesus first preached was a gospel of the kingdom. Jesus spoke in parables specifically so that hearts would be hardened but the ones who God grants would hear. And the content of those parables were about the kingdom. When Jesus at the end closes the canon, ends the book of Revelation. He's revealing to John mysteries of his coming kingdom. So the Bible ends with Jesus teaching us about his kingdom. Now think about the Great Commission. In the Great Commission, Jesus sends us out to disciple the nations. To teach the nations to obey everything that we have been commanded, everything that we have been given, everything that we've been handed, that we've learned from the Lord, we are to teach to the nations. Now think about how much Jesus taught about the kingdom. A lot. He preached about the kingdom. He gave parables about the kingdom. And so today, one of the one of the one of the great Um, reasons and motivations for taking Daniel on right now is this very chunk of verses. This is an incredible chunk of our scriptures, an incredible passage that discusses the kingdom of God. Because remember, where does Jesus quote when he's being arrested and tried He's getting accused of all kinds of things. And when he finally speaks, he says, it is as you say. And then he quotes from Daniel chapter 7. So he wanted, before he hit the cross and tackled what he came to do, he wanted to leave with us, his disciples then and us now, Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. And so there is some stuff going on between Daniels chapter 2 through 7. And uh, it's such a privilege. It's such a privilege for us to be in this text today. It is absolutely incredible. So again, I want you to think about this this phrase. The kingdom of God victoriously advances. Victoriously advances over the kingdoms of this world through the faithful witness of his people, in the midst of persecution. So we're going to look, you know, what they call it, the thousand-foot view. We're going to fly over the top and do a pass of Daniel two through seven, and then we'll come back and we'll settle in on Daniel two as we move forward, and then we'll take them um, chapter at a time. But as we do this, we're going to we're going to work through this together, because we've got to make sure that our brains are scaffolding this content and we're working through it. And so there are three clues that tell us that there's something special in the text about Daniel chapter two through seven. There's three that make us pause and remember, we're going to come back to this idea that the chapter numbers and chapter verses, they weren't there originally. So we have a very easy time navigating verses. Turn to Daniel chapter five. Okay, and we get right there. Well, if you're reading the scroll of Daniel, there are clues within Daniel that tell you what to emphasize and to track the flow of what he's doing. So there's three clues. And the first one is the original language. Okay, the original language. We've mentioned this before. We'll continue just to keep reminding ourselves. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Hebrew, if you think, you know, the the phrase, it's all Greek to me, just wait till you peek into Hebrew. Ancient Hebrew did not have vowels. They started from the right to the left, and they just wrote on scrolls. So, 99 of the Old Testament. 99.5% of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. There are two significant chunks that are not written in Hebrew found in Ezra and here in Daniel chapter 2. Hebrews, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 1 through Daniel chapter 2 verse 3 is written in Hebrew. Starting at chapter 2 verse 4 It's written in Aramaic. And then everything everything following and all the way through Daniel chapter 7 is written in Aramaic. And then he goes back to Hebrew for 8 through 12. And then the rest of the Bible is in Hebrew. There's the Old Testament. Minus the little chunk out of Ezra. So we should ask ourselves, why is this in Aramaic? Okay, why? Why? So Hebrew is the language of the Israelites, of God's people. Aramaic is the language of the Gentiles. If someone read Daniel, the Hebrew part, the general Gentile wouldn't know what was going on. You get to chapter 2, verse 4, and all of a sudden it's in the language they're tracking with. All the way through God has always intended to be a light to the Gentiles. He's always intended his kingdom to be a kingdom that reigns over all nations. Everything points towards Christ. It's called redemptive history. It is his story. That's not an overused little cliche. History is his story. Everything before the birth of Christ points to Christ in our scriptures. Everything after the birth of Christ And after his life and death and resurrection and ascension, points back to his life and looks forward to his coming. It is all about him. But God has a message for the Gentiles. He always has. He's a redeemer of all peoples, plural, all nations, plural. And in the end, every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's not a New Testament thing. It just took Christ to accomplish God's plan. Okay, so... Number one, something is going on in Daniel chapter two through seven because it's in Aramaic. It's intended to be read easily by the nations. Number two, the chronology. There's a chronology. So Daniel chapter two picks up with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar right? We've been studying 586 BC. Nebuchadnezzar finished what he started by taking Daniel and, uh, and Ezekiel and... And then he destroyed the temple, 586, and they're in Babylon. So when you, the first chapters are with Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter two is Nebuchadnezzar. You have the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar builds. Okay. So then it shifts to Belshazzar. This is all chronological now, right? So, Daniel chapter 5, verse 30, King Belshazzar of Babylon dies. Daniel chapter 5, verse 31, King Darius of Persia takes over. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1, King Darius in the lion's den, still flowing chronological. And then we read Daniel chapter 7 verse 1 and it says the first year of king Belshazzar's reign. Why? And then he goes back to Darius later. So he shifts and he sticks this vision smack where it's out of place. And there's a couple the couple of verses afterwards follow Belshazzar first year, third year. But these don't fit chronologically why well it's not strange at all for poetic and apocalyptic literature to play a little loose with timelines when there's a message to be communicated and daniel the book of daniel is a mix of both it is historically accurate dates and names historically accurate and yet there are visions wild visions that he gets that lays a foundation for life and faith and so the chronology makes us go, that's interesting. Why would that vision be stuck here at chapter seven? It's out of place chronologically. So gets us to our third and our, now the part that starts digging into the text for us. There's the structure of Daniel. The structure of Daniel. So we've got the original language is different for chapters two through seven. The chronology is different as we get to chapter 7. And now the structure. And for this, I would have you, if you would, look inside of the order of worship today. And there's something called the chiasm that we're going to look at. Now, I want to be very careful with any time. We're not doing Bible codes. We're not looking for secret meanings in the names and piecing a puzzle together and having some kind of. This isn't some kind of secret revealed knowledge. Okay. Our goal is to observe. So let me talk to you a little bit about chiasm because it's a big deal for your Bible reading all over the place, not just for the book of Daniel. All a chiasm means is that it's a a way to write or to communicate where you give an idea and a theme. Idea is presented. There's a sequence to it. And then it's reversed. The same ideas are reversed. So you start at a point, you walk down the path, you get to an end, and then you walk back as you're reading through the text. Uh, it looks like a, I don't know the best way to describe it. It looks like a V taking a nap. You know, you lay down and like the the, the the verse goes, the, the passages go like this to a point, and they match up along the way at every step. We'll talk about it. If you're a math lover, it's the greater than sign, right? Okay. <laughs> Be taking a I like, <laughs> taking a that that would be a Z, I guess, not a you know Z's, <laughs> but <clears throat> it's uh, the the greater the greater than sign for you lovers of math. Yeah, repeat. This isn't a special code. This isn't secret hidden. Uh, this is for everybody to see, and we're going to be very careful when we make big conclusions based upon this because they better be in the text. Because if it's not the text, then it's man's imaginations, and it's foolish, and it has no power. Before I go into the details of it, I want you to know that parallelism is used a lot in Scripture. Different forms of parallelism, different structures pop up all the time. In fact, you read Psalms, we read Psalms all the time, and we skip over it. In our passage today, there was some parallelism. In Psalm chapter 36, when it was read this morning... At verses 5 through 6, it says this. um, Oh, that's 30. It's the wrong chapter. Psalm 36. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. That's parallelism. They're paired together. It's a literary device that the, the Lord inspired for us. To pay attention to what he's teaching us. Okay. It happens. Ooh, that's upside down. Um, Psalm 19 is one of the. Uh, it's such a crystal clear example. Of how God inspired literary devices to benefit us. In Psalm 19. It says. Um, I've got. Most of it, my, my, the law of the Lord is Perfect restoring the soul the testimony of the lord is sure making wise the simple the precepts of the lord so all of these are to be not necessarily equated they don't mean the exact same thing but it's a it's a literary device the law testimony precepts commandments they're all referring to the same idea the things of the lord and they produce things it's it's a literary device proverbs will do it and it'll be the opposite like a I just opened up the book of Proverbs, and I just kind of pulled the Proverbs 10 just to show you how common it, it is. It's all over the place. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse five, it says, "He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully." So now you've got the, 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 the parallel verses. They're designed to be referring to the same thing, but one's the positive, one's the negative. It's, it's converse. It's, it, but it's designed to compare the two ideas. Now, why am, I, why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this because what, I'm not making stuff up when I say that we recognize liter, literary devices in the scriptures and they're intended for our edification. They're intended for our understanding of scriptures. God uses them all the time. The book of James, by the way, is one in the original language. Consider it pure joy, my brethren, when you face trials of many kind, for you know that testing, trials, testing, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work in you so that you will be found mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Lacking. But if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God because the device is built in. Okay, that's designed to help uh, actually help you memorize that passage. It it helps you flow. So God uses, because he's so good, because he knows. I've been trying to memorize the same passages out of Romans, and I think I got them, and then I turn off my little memory thing, and I try to repeat them. It's like I've never heard the verse before. Like my brain sometimes, I feel like it's like like a snow sledding hill, and things are just sliding off of it. We only want to emphasize what the scriptures have to emphasize, but God is so good and gracious with our weaknesses, and he gives us lots of guidance. So with that in mind, I have two examples of chiasms in here so that you can also see that this exists all over the place, and not just all over the place, that it's important to Jesus. So Matthew chapter chapter 6 verse 24 says, and you'll see how I have it broken up here for you. the the italicized phrases and the middle two phrases are designed to be looked at together and the bold on the outsides. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So it is right To go, what does it mean, what two masters? No one can serve two masters. What two masters is Jesus talking about? Uh, God and wealth. Or God and mammon, depending on what your your things say. All right? That's a chiasm right there. A, B, C, C, B, A. If you can see that flow. Out of Jesus' mouth. Revelation chapter 2 through 3, we're not going to get distracted by these. So I'm just going to – I have it written there as a nice little clean example for you. That's the V on its side, laying down example of what a chiasm looks like. These churches are designed as a chiasm to emphasize a message. And one reason why I recognize the chiasm helps you is when everybody goes, which church is in the worst shape? Everybody says – laodicea because they're going to get spat out because that's such a graphic image but we forget that ephesus is just as bad off as laodicea because they're about to have their lampstand removed how is losing your light any different than being spat out by christ both of them are complete rejection you have no witness and notice that they are the first and the last churches smyrna and philadelphia they are the ones who have no criticism. And you notice how they match up in our chiasm. Pergamum and Sardis have a mixed bag. And then Thyatira goes into details and actually quotes in Thyatira. Look at that. It, you notice how it would all emphasize this middle church in this in this chiasm. It emphasizes there's one all by itself that doesn't have a comparison. And in it, there's a quote from the Old Testament And it just so happens to say to him, I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as to the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father. He happens to quote a dominion passage from the Old Testament, right smack in the middle. So chiasms are used all the time. They're all over the place. Um, And we're not gonna get crazy looking at them, but they do help us study our word and our scriptures. Back to Daniel, there's a chiasm in Daniel. And I have it here at the bottom of this for you. Remember, you lay out, you walk down the path, you reach a destination and then you walk it back. So that means Daniel chapter two, chapter three and chapter four, take us to a place. And then we're gonna sit at that place for a moment And then we're gonna reverse our steps. And remember, Christ quotes from Daniel chapter seven before he enters the cross. Before he goes and satisfies the wrath of God for sins and drinks the cup. That's how significant this is. I read to you verses this morning that highlight that aspect of these chapters. But fear not, it will not take us long to grab the ideas of them. And I want us to grab them together. Like I said, there's a lot of content. And so that's why things like chiasms are nice because there may be some things that are a little hard to process and it, and it may be new to you, but at least you can see visually the structure and you can know the emphasis of things that are coming. And there's stories that we're fairly familiar with. So for example, Daniel chapter two, what is Daniel chapter two about? And we can have contribution from the gathered saints. What is Daniel chapter two about? My family can be a little slow to answer because we've done this before, but you can chime in if you want. Daniel chapter two, what's going on? What's the famous story? The famous thing out of Daniel chapter two—it's a vision, a giant statue. Okay, what do these statues represent? Kingdoms. Kingdoms. Bad. <laughs> Kingdoms of the world, and the top one is Babylon, and there's a chronology to them. We're not going to get into that right now. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are told to bow down and worship this statue. And I love, and they're called forth, remember the call that people spying on them and they're called out. And this is one of the, this is one of the great, great phrases of scripture ever. One of the greatest phrases is verse 46. Uh, Chapter two, wait, I'm sorry, not chapter two, verse 46. We're not there yet, sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself, sorry. Chapter two, you're going down this statue, okay? And then what happens after the statue is revealed? There's a stone, right? There's a stone that comes and the stone says that it's not carved by human hands. So the statue is carved by human hands. The statue represents kingdoms of the world. The stone comes and crushes it. And then what does this stone do? It grows and it fills the entire world. And so at 2.46, we are told... Wait, I, I'm sorry. I just got totally confused. Hold on. It's okay. The king's dream, the statue, but that stone that struck it. What was I doing down there? The stone that struck it and the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And we are told that this stone is the kingdom of God. All right. Back on track. Woo. So here we are. So you have this statue. It's the kingdoms of the world. You have a stone that represents the kingdom of God. It crushes the statue, and then it grows to fill the whole earth. Jesus uses stone imagery to talk about himself. He's the stone that the builders rejected. He's a rock of offense, a stumbling block. But he's the cornerstone. He's the chief cornerstone. And what you see here is you see the kingdoms of man destroyed by the kingdom of God, and then the kingdom of God victoriously fills the whole earth. So at the end, there is no statue anymore. It's dusted by this stone. Okay? So for Daniel chapter 2, we're going to say the kingdom of God is victorious over the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of God is victorious over the kingdom of the world. Statues of man, built by man, stone built by God, comes, crushes it, fills the whole earth. Daniel chapter 7 is what kind of vision? There's another vision. In Daniel chapter 7, there's beasts and there's images of man. But the beasts represent the same kind of nations that the statue represented in chapter 2. And then the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne is the Father. And then one like the Son of Man comes. And what's the Son of Man handed? The Son of Man is handed the kingdom and dominion and glory. And he reigns. And it says that all peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Notice that each beast has an end to their reign. But the Son of Man reigns forever. Daniel chapter two and Daniel chapter seven have the same foundational message. The kingdom of God is victorious over the kingdoms of the world. Daniel's chapter two, Daniel chapter seven, okay? And they're both visions. And remember, Daniel, through inspired by the Holy Spirit, put chapter seven exactly where it was to match up with chapter two in this chiasm. It was intentional. It's out of order, and it's still written in Aramaic, and the rest of them, remember, they shift back to Hebrew, so it's a part of this pack for us. All right, sorry. Now, chapter three, going back to my story of Hananiah, and and Mishael, and Azariah, I think because I worked so hard to get their names right, I got confused on where to put them because I keep wanting to say their names. I've said said Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for so long. It's so hard to shift, but I want to get good at shifting. I should just not worry about their names and stick with it. So Daniel chapter three, golden image. They say they are um, told to worship down at this golden image. We're not going to spend, again, we're not going to look at the details. We're just going to look at the point of this chapter. The point of this chapter is very simple. What happens because of their faithfulness? What happens to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What happens to them because they faithfully serve their God and they will not bow down and worship the golden image? They get thrown in the furnace. We can call it persecution. Call it tribulation. Whatever word you want to use. For their faith, they were pressed and crushed and attacked by the kingdom of the world. By the king of Babylon. And in it, though, God himself comforts them while they're in the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar, when he pulls them out, praises God. Praises God. And so to summarize Daniel chapter three, faithful witness in the midst of persecution. They're faithful witness in the midst of persecution And remember, all of this is about the kingdom. All this is about the kingdom. So, Daniel chapter 6 now. So, 3 and 6 are paired. 2 and 7 are paired. 3 and 6 are paired. Daniel chapter 3 is the fiery furnace. What's Daniel chapter 6? It's the lion's den. It's the lion's den. Can you guess what the summary of this chapter is? Faithful witness in the midst of persecution. Why? Because Daniel is told to stop praying to Yahweh to pray to the king of Persia. And Daniel does what he normally does. And he prays. And God shuts the mouths of the lions. And God is praised when Daniel exists, exits out of the, the lion's den. Yahweh gets praised. The enemies get Tossed in to feed the lions. God's kingdom, through the faithful witness in the midst of persecution, God's people survive. Okay, so two and seven, God's kingdom advances over the kingdoms of the world. Three and six, faithful witness in the midst of persecution. And now four and five, two people get humbled. In four and five, in Daniel chapter four, who gets humbled? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar becomes a beast. He looks out over the great Babylon, seventh wonder, one of the seventh wonders of the ancient worlds, or the gardens of Babylon. He's looking out over his kingdom, and he looks and he takes the praise for himself. And God humbles him, and before he's even done finishing his boast, God makes him eat like a beast on the ground for seven years. And then at the end, it's actually from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. How great is that? And he talks about giving praise to God. So God humbles his enemy in the end of chapter 4 and gets the praise for it. Chapter 5 picks up and there's a new king of Babylon, King King Belshazzar. And that's the vision that we read from Daniel and that which was written on the wall. Many, many Tekel, a parson. And he's worshiping the gods of gold and silver. How much more idolatrous can you get? They're actually naming them. It's the wealth of the world. And Daniel gives them this prophecy. And for some reason, Belshazzar gave orders to clothe Daniel with purple. And put him in a necklace of gold around his neck. And issued a proclamation concerning him. And how he had authority as the third ruler in all the kingdom. Daniel says, Belshazzar, your kingdom's going to be taken from you and, and handed to Persia. And the king's reward is to actually make him a ruler. And then he dies. That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was slain. And Darius the Mede received the two. So God humbles his enemies. So this is how it flows, people. Faithful witness in the, uh, the kingdom of God is victorious of the kingdoms of the world. Daniel chapter two. Daniel chapter three. Faithful witness in the midst of persecution. Daniel chapter four. God humbles his enemy, the kings of the world. Daniel chapter five. God humbles his enemies, the kings of the world. Daniel chapter 6, faithful witness in the midst of persecution. And Daniel chapter 7, the kingdom of God reigns over the kingdoms of the world. And all of that wrapped up together is the phrase, the kingdom of God victoriously advances over the kingdoms of this world through the faithful witness of his people in the midst of persecution. That is the message that God inspired Daniel to write in Aramaic, hundreds of years before Christ was born, in order to communicate what it looks like for his kingdom to advance. Now, now we get to the bread and the butter, the practical things, the things that we got to cling to. Now, this is critical. Who is our king? Who is Our master. Whose disciple are we? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to do what? To establish his kingdom. But the Jews were slow to recognize the kind of kingdom he was establishing and yet they had no excuse because they should have recognized it. Why? What do you see here in Daniel chapter two? Do you see God's kingdom advancing without suffering? Do you see God's kingdom advancing without persecution? How is God most magnified? God is most magnified when he saves those three out of the fire. God is most magnified when he saves David out of the lion's den. When Christ comes to establish his kingdom, does he come... And call the angels from heaven to kill all of his enemies and sit on the throne and establish that kind of reign and rule on earth. Is that the kind of crown he wore? No. What kind of crown did he wear? A crown of what? A crown of thorns. Why did he wear a crown of thorns rather than a crown of diamonds and gold and jewels? Because he was accomplishing his father's will. And what's the will of his father? The will of the father is that his kingdom come through the faithful witness of his people in the midst of trials and persecutions and hardships, even unto death. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Why? Because Christ was humble, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Why is that true? Was there any more humble than Christ? No, because he had more to give up. Philippians chapter two. He was so humble, he was obedient to death, not just death, even death on the cross. And therefore God highly exalted him. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Why? Because that's who Christ is. So what does it mean to be a citizen of that kind of kingdom? This is where we get goofy in our end times eschatology beliefs. We mix a lot of things, and I'm gonna I'm gonna just gonna say two things that maybe not everybody agrees with me on, and 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 they don't necessarily flow with everything you see being said today. On the one hand, people want to see the persecution of the church as the world winning. You hear a lot that things are gonna get worse and we're just gonna swallow up and the world's gonna win and then Christ is gonna rapture and then And I'm telling you, whatever you think is gonna happen in the details, we misread the text if we see persecution of the faithful as a sign that the world is winning. That's not the sign that the world is winning. That's what God uses to advance his kingdom. He set the foundation for us in Daniel. Christ quotes from it. That's what he did. The darkest moment, the line that we always use, the only time something good, the only time something bad happened to a good person was once, and that was Christ on the cross. Right? There was That was his most, John says, you're going to see the son of man lifted up. Oh, and everybody's expecting a king. And then he tells us, ah, but he means the cross. Christ is magnified by the cross? What? We say these things so much we swim in these contradictions, apparent contradictions. We swim in these things that seem so foolish to the world. We forget that it seems foolish to the world. Why would Christ died on the cross be dominion? Because he wins through faithfulness in the midst of persecution. We quoted from Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child born, for unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end. Kind of like a stone that starts small and grows and never stops. And destroys all the kingdoms of the world along the way. And though the nations rage... God in heaven laughs because it's exactly his plan. Look what we can do to your people. And God laughs at those wicked people while he comforts his faithful. Because what does he say? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's okay if we don't see justice in our time for the wicked. It hurts. It makes us long for heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For a reason. Blessed are those who are hungry. Because we see injustice and we don't see justice done. And yet there's a day they're going to stand before Christ. Who will render to every man according to his deeds. So the wicked think that he's ruling and he's winning when he persecutes the faithful. And the faithful who understand their God laugh. Because we know that that's how God wins. That's how God wins. That's why in Matthew, he said, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. Why? How is that the cross? How is that the death of Jesus and the resurrection, his ascension? Because God's kingdom advances through the faithful witness of his people. Revelation chapter 1 you want to know where the Trinity exists? It exists in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit and the Father are there. And then Jesus is called the what? The Faithful. The Faithful. And remember, Revelation is good. It says it's blessed of the one who hears the words of this. Revelation chapter five. What do we hear about this faithful witness in Revelation chapter five? I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Conveniently, Daniel has a seal, has a scroll that gets sealed at the end. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And I looked in heaven, on earth, under the earth. Was any able to open the book and to look into it? And I began to weep greatly, says John, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome as to open the book and its seven seals. Ah, the lion of the tribe of David has, he's conquered. That's what I hear. Now he turns and looks and what does he see? He sees a lamb standing as if slain. His faithfulness in the midst of persecution in this vision of heaven makes him worthy to receive the scroll. Chapter 12. The dragon gets cast down. Why? And they overcame him. How? By the blood of the Lamb, blood of the Lamb spilled, and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even unto death. In other words, they were faithful to Him even if it cost them their life. And when you are faithful in persecution, Satan visually gets kicked out of heaven, he's got nothing. It reminds him every day of his defeat. Every second you are faithful in persecution, you pronounce to the heavenly places that Jesus is king, that his kingdom is coming, and whatever the world throws at us will not matter because he is our king, he is our master, he is our comfort. And just like Christ was victorious on the cross, when we stand fast, in the midst of trials and persecutions, we rest assured that it is in fact the growing kingdom of God. And then in Revelation 22 at the very end, how beautiful is it? Revelation chapter 22. And he just reminds everybody That the one who does wrong still do wrong. The one who is filthy be filthy. That the one who is righteous practice righteousness. That the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and may enter into the gates. Blessed. Blessed and so here's the exhortation here's the end this isn't saying the end and then keep going this is the end and it's the words of Christ and it's his call to discipleship and it's Matthew chapter 16 and then Jesus said to his disciples if anyone wishes to come after me he must deny himself. Matthew chapter chapter 16, verse 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake finds it. Why? Why? Why is that true? Why is it true when you lose your life, you find it? And what does it mean? It means going into the lion's den, if that's what has to happen. It means being tossed in the fiery furnace because you will not pray to a false God. It means saying like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Oh, Kings and false gods and idols and wicked tyrants of the world. You can do whatever you want to us. Our God is mighty to save. He could crush you and deliver us this moment. He could give us all of our needs abundantly more. I have no doubt. But even if He doesn't, we will not bow the knee to you. We will not bow the knee to you because Christ is King. And this is how we win. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. And we will lose our life. We will lose our livelihood. We will lose our reputation. We will lose all the things that this world has, if it but gains us Christ. We must decrease so that he must increase. In every way, shape, and form. And it's not defeat It's not defeat. We get crushed however that crushing looks, if it's the physical things of this world, sickness, disease, famine, sword, if it's outright persecution, if it's worst case scenario, welcome to concentration camps in America, it don't matter. If it's continue on limping along in our apathy for another generation, it doesn't matter. The call is the same. Live faithful, live faithful, live faithful. Lose your life. What will a prophet, what will a prophet a man (laughs) if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? What will a man give? What What would you forfeit your soul for? What would you give up your soul for? For the Son of Man is coming in the glory of his Father with his angels. And what's he coming to do? He's coming to render and repay every person according to his deeds. You want to be good enough? Go right ahead. I'll let you wait and stand before Christ with your deeds. We're clothed in Christ. His deeds speak for us. And he will repay every man according to his deeds. But truly, I say to you, there are some who are standing here today who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. When you saw Christ die, buried, resurrected, and ascended, you saw him coming in his kingdom. It started it. So deny yourselves, saints. Take up your cross and follow Christ because through your faithful, faithful witness in the midst of persecution, the kingdom is victorious and defeats the kingdoms of the world and advances. And it started and it will continue until all things are made new in Christ. So, Father, we pray that we would appreciate your truths. We really, Father, just, we want to celebrate the good that you give us, and we want to be prepared to stand firm through whatever trials may come so that you can get the glory and that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.